Open it up for questions. Your guys' thoughts on this text and where we're going and what we're doing here. Any questions on Jesus going to Samaria? Eric. Um, it seems like they're building these statues to Baal. And can you describe more of what that culture looked like? Sure. Um, so we know the statues of Baal, they would have... Uh, these are these are basically all this is in one sense it's all economics it's they're all fertility gods they're all rain god it's all centers around having kids having reproductive stock having grain and harvest and rain it's, it's all economics i mean we feel so much more sophisticated about our killing of our unborn but we're doing it for the same reasons the reasons most people give for having an abortion are economic like it'll hinder their earning potential it'll mess them up their lifestyle it's the same thing they're doing in the Old Testament. I, I need it to rain. So I'll, here's, in some sense, they're more righteous. They're giving their kids because they view them as valuable. In some senses, they're, they're doing a better job than we are because they're saying, I will give Chemosh or Molech or Baal, my child, whom I value for something I value even more, rain, or something I value even more, crops growing. Um, so that's, that's what we understand about the high places precise. Let's see, I can do this in a PG setting. Those tall trees, they would take a tree on the high hill, cut all of its branches off so that it resembled a phallus. And then they would have some sort of orgy or some sort of ritual around it in the hopes, it seems as though, the gods would be aroused and the overflow of that would be fertility and crops and animals and people. Um, I'm not going to speak in any more detail than that, but that's, that's kind of the center of all of these things. And so when I talk about henotheism, um, it's, it's, it's not as though the Israelites or even the Samaritans stop believing Yahweh is a God. The text even said they feared the Lord and they worship their gods. It's, they think that Yahweh is God. Yahweh is the big God. Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, but Baal can make it rain. And I need some rain. So they would view it. It's the same thing that happens at the end of Joshua. I mean, um, turn, to, turn to Joshua. This is probably one of the mis, I think, one of the most misquoted and understood passages in the Bible. But, but Israel has been really, from this founding, doing this henotheism thing. One big God with other gods. Polythe polytheism, the only difference between henotheism and polytheism is henotheism recognizes there's one central big God and then there's these other powers. Whereas polytheism just, you know, there's a bunch of gods. But, um, okay, let me get there. Okay, Joshua. Before Judges. Here we go. So Joshua 24, okay? Three times Joshua is going to tell the people to put away their gods. We're at the end of the conquest of Canaan. We're at the end of this whole situation, and they still have other gods. And the people never once say they'll get rid of their gods. What they insist is, we'll keep worshiping the Lord. They think they can do both. But the challenge for us, I think, is we do the same thing. I'll worship the Lord, and I'll worship money. I'll worship the Lord, and I'll worship the praise of man. Our, God, our idols are less overt, but the danger of I'll worship God and I'll worship this other thing, I think is, is we're, we're all prone to. If you're reading the Old Testament and thinking those knuckleheads, you're not reading it right. You need to read it and go, yeah, that's what I do. That's what I do. So look, so Joshua 24, 14. Um, now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served before the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now that's the verse that everyone quotes. And the reason why I think it's misunderstood is I think that's a fine verse if you're not the theocratic head of a people. I would contrast you with, say, Moses and what Moses might do. Put up your gods or we're going to start cutting people down. You remember what happened with how, do you remember how the tribe of Levi got its priesthood? 
Moses, it's the, it's the golden calf. Moses says, who's on the Lord's side? The tribe of Levi comes and he says, take your swords, walk from one side of the camp to the other. And I don't care if you come across your mother, your father, your brother, your son or daughter, you cut them down. And they do. And on that basis, showing that type of loyalty to God, God gives them a priesthood because they're zealous for God's name. So, so what Joshua says here, choose for yourself, but I'm going to do it, is great for an individual. And in that sense, it's fine to put on your, your wall. But if you've been given the death penalty, if you've been given the theocratic leadership of a theocratic people, this is weak sauce in my mind. Anyway, um, and I think the book of Judges that follows bears that out. Anyway, keep going. So he tells them to get rid of it. Then look at the people's response, verse 16. Then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake. The, they, all they're insisting is we won't stop worshiping the Lord. They're insisting they can do both. We won't stop worshiping the Lord. That's all they say. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery who did those great signs in our midst and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples. Therefore, we, will, we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. And to make the point they have not indicated they'll get rid of their idols, Joshua tells them to do it again. 19, and Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions and your sins. I think he's saying, God is not going to take it kindly that you're worshiping these other gods too. That's not going to work. Those dogs aren't going to hunt. And if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. Xenotheism. They think they can do both. And if we're honest, often so do we. I can worship God and my other things. I mean, so it, that's partly why I'm saying the Samaritans are worse, are as bad as we think, or worse. The reality, though, is, and we're just as bad. Um, the, the, the resolution is not the Samaritans are misunderstood. No, they've never had a good day of their life. Their founding was in revolt and treason and apostasy and idolatry. Their kings get worse, 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 worse. They're judged by God. Then the Assyrians pour in a bunch of rank pagans. They intermarry. They syncretize the worship system. They hinder the building of the temple. And yet they have the audacity to say, we're your brothers, we're worshiping the same God. Yeah, it's, it's a complete train wreck, start to finish. And then this woman is the worst of the worst of them. She's the, I mean, best guess of why she's coming at noon is because she doesn't want to be around people. Because, you know, people can be mean. Um, and you can imagine the gossip, you can imagine the sneering. So this is the woman the Samaritans despise and look down on, and the Samaritans are the ones who are despised by Israel. That's, anyway, um, I just went off on a long tangent, but what were we saying? Sorry. <laughs> Eric? Sorry. It was Eric. That's right. Any, any, any questions with this? Okay. Matt? Not a question, but when I was thinking about reasons why she may be coming out at noon, is there anybody that thinks, oh, she sees another single guy showing up at a well? <laughs> no, because she didn't expect him to talk to her. It's clear. She said, well, what are you doing talking to me? So she was not thinking he was going to talk to her. Um, yeah, that, that's an interesting concept. But no, she, she evidences surprise that he speaks to her. Um, yeah, okay. Other thoughts, complaints, questions from the... Yeah, Jake. Interesting point you made um, contrasting the Sumerian woman with... Uh, <clears throat> um, well, if I'd had my own question worked out here... Who was it? Um, who would Nicodemus. Nicodemus. Thank you. Wow. Need more coffee. Um, contrasting the Sumerian woman with Nicodemus, their difference in position and the way Jesus sort of speaks to them differently. Right. Is there any biblical warrant for us when we're witnessing or sharing Christ with others to 
do the same, maybe, maybe approach it a little differently depending on the status or the knowledge of the person we're speaking with? Absolutely. Thanks for throwing it low and over the plate. That's a sports analogy, right? Um, hold on, let me find the passage I'm thinking of. Okay. Um, where is it? Okay, salt season. Nope. Salt words. Seriously? Yes, where is that? It's Timothy, right? Or is it Peter? It's Peter. Seasoning your words with salt so you'll not give an answer to every man. Is it first Peter? Okay, let's just go to Peter. It's in there. We'll find, I'll find it. We'll zero in. Somebody with a phone better than mine is going to find it for me. Um, is it four? First Peter four? Or is it three? Um, Colossians 4 6. It wasn't even close. Good job. Colossians 4. All right. I wasn't even close. That's bad. Colossians 4 6. Okay. Colossians 4 6. Um, verse 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech also be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you may know how you ought to answer each person. And so from time to time, we've done evangelism training. We're, we're potentially working on an ABF missions, even some evangelism focus. And it's a mistake to think there's a one-size-fits-all approach. Um, you, you, you need wisdom on how to answer each person. Um, and if, if I contrasted Jesus' evangelism, take the rich young ruler, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you can be my disciple. He doesn't say that to everyone. Just contrast Jesus' approach in John 3 to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus shows up saying something polite, saying something affirming. Everything Nicodemus says is entirely orthodox. We know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. And we've just seen in John 2, Jesus knows what's in man, and so when Jesus answers him, he knows Nicodemus' fundamental problem, and he thinks way too highly of himself, and so he humbles him. You've come here to size me up. You've come here to evaluate me. What makes you think you can see truth and you'd recognize it and know it if you saw it? And with this woman, she is not seeking. She dodges him. When Jesus, she, she, just like Nicodemus, there are similarities. Just as Nicodemus, she misunderstands the living water. She's like, well, where is it? Where's your ladle? You know, just like Nic Jesus with Nicodemus, you must be born again. He misunderstands. But as Jesus zeroes in on her, her immorality, she dodges. Call your husband. Speaking of husbands, which mountain? Let's have a nice religious debate. Um, and, and Jesus isn't unwilling to tell her she's totally wrong. I mean, don't, don't miss that either. As gentle and as meek and as kind as Jesus is, he does not compromise truth. Turn back to uh, John 4, right? Um, no, because people in the name of truth, people in the name of niceness and being winsome, that's a buzzword these days, being winsome and being nice. And as Jesus is so compassionate and so kind here, but he does not compromise truth. Look, look at what he says here. Um, verse 21. So, so again, following the flow of thought, call your husband. The woman said, don't have a husband. Jesus said, well, yeah, but you've had five. And the guy you're with now isn't your husband. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. And then she immediately changes the subject. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. You say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. And the implied question is, which one's right? And Jesus goes along, and but he doesn't pull the punch here. This has got a sting. He says, believe me, woman, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor Jerusalem we worship. There's an hour coming soon where geography isn't going to decide where you worship. What's the geographic center of the church? We don't have one. We're transnational. Where do you have to go to worship God? Anywhere, right? There's, there's no location. But while the old covenant is still in effect, there is a right answer to this question. So he says, the woman's hour is coming. Verse 22, though, you worship what you do not know. And we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. If you want to ask, the Samaritans are wrong. The Jews are right. It's Jerusalem, and it's the worship system established there. So even as gentle and as kind as he is, in the name of meekness and kindness and gentleness, he doesn't 
compromise truth. Um, and so he says, we worship what we know, your salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming, and it's now here, when true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. So, so Jesus' approach to her, Jesus' approach to Nicodemus, Jesus' approach to the rich young ruler, they're all radically different. And so there, there isn't a one-size-fits-all. So when you read books on evangelism, when you study different things, I'd say it's helpful to think of a toolbox. We've got some various tools, approaches, having some avenues of approach in evangelism. But I would no more want to teach, here's a model for evangelism out of John 4 than I would out of John 3. Here's a way to evangelize. It's a perfect way. It's not the only way. In John 3, it's going to be a little different. In John 6, Jesus is intentionally saying hard truths to drive people away. It's not very seeker sensitive. You know, he says hard, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Go to, go to John 6. I mean, Jesus is not a tame lion. He, he does not have a one-size-fits-all approach. That's one of the things that's marvelous about John's gospel. He plays so many different... Um, Jesus knows what people need to hear. John 6... Um, verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Now remember, this is the same group that he fed the 5,000 with. They want to come and take him by force and make him king. So I will suggest to you, perhaps the reason Jesus says such hard teaching is eat my flesh and drink my blood. Again, he knows they're not legitimate disciples. He knows they're not real followers. So what's the kindest thing he can do? Show them that. He'll show that to them by saying hard truth that drives them back. It's, they're in a better spiritual position knowing they actually don't follow Jesus than thinking, yay, Jesus, King Jesus, and they're totally off the page. So again, Jesus is being kind and loving even as he says hard things. Um, and verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? In other words, he doesn't say, now God, on, guys, work with me here. He pushes even harder. What, this is troubling you? I got some more stuff I could say. I mean, it's just amazing. Um, it is the Holy Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but you are some. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who those were who did not believe and who it was who betray him. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by my Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, you want to go away as well? And this is hard. You get this hard blow hits what comes out of him is ringing faith, even as he does not understand. The, the, Peter here isn't like, I get it. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone are the words of life. And we have come to believe and have come to know, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus doesn't say, good for you, Peter. He says, did I not choose you in the 12 yet one of you is a devil? This is Jesus really brings attention is his we'll see that too in john which is like the starkest contrast to what we see here in john chapter four so as a long answer to to uh jake's question absolutely we approach and talk to people in different ways and, and we should be asking god for wisdom asking to try to pick up on what we can be considering how to answer we're told in colossians we had to answer each man season errors of salt considering so as you learn different evangelistic methods put them in your toolbox try them out try different things but there isn't some one size fits all this is the way to evangelize um, it, it's, it's radically different for different people. Um, I mean, you think of the, the Philippian jailer, a man who's about to kill himself, needs, doesn't get, sell everything you have and give to the poor. There's a sense in which that's not his problem. He needs something to believe in. He's about ready to turn from everything in this life. So the, he, he falls on his face in front of um, Paul and Silas and calls them... Corioi, Corioi, Lords, the ESV, and every other translation, Sirs. When you fall on your face in front of someone and call them Corios, you're calling them Lord. And the play on words is they say, no, but believe upon the Corios Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, he doesn't need a hard count the cost 
sermon. Some people do. This guy didn't. And so, yeah, there's, there's not a one-size-fits-all approach um, in, in evangelism. Just don't, Just don't twist the truth. And be open and looking. Jesus is basically saying, I, I love that. I mean, John 4. I didn't even have time to touch on this. Would you be busy thinking about evangelism if you've walked 20 miles and are dead tired in the heat of the day in the Middle East? Presumably, Jesus sends them away because he wants some alone time. He wants to catch his breath. You know, he's, we know from, from the other Gospels that he loved the disciples, but they, they were hard work. He comes down from the mountain of Mount Transfiguration. How long must I endure you? You know, they weren't just joy and sunshine to be around. And so he sends them into to Sychar. He's sitting at the well. He's catching his breath. He's exhausted. And then he, this woman comes, and he tells the disciples what it is. As hungry as he is, as tired as he is, he sees part of the white fields ready for harvest, right? John 4, they come to him. I, I love this. Um, they come to him. <clears throat> Verse 27. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. So there's the, just the contrast of a rabbi talking with a woman. That's not done. She's a Samaritan woman. And then we know she's an immoral Samaritan woman. They marveled that he was talking to the woman, but no one said to him, what do you seek or why are you talking with it? At least have the common sense not to be like, hey, hey master, what are you doing? Um, so the woman left um, and told everyone. So verse 31, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. They can see he's tired. They know how far he's walked. They know how tired he is. They bought some food. And they say, Rabbi, eat. He says, I have food to eat you don't know about. This is an, another in a long line of people misunderstanding. And they're like, you know what? Did he, where did he get some food from? Um, and they said, so the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So get this. Jesus is hungry. He sends the disciples to get food. And then he sees another part of God's will. And that is what he's, the comparison is just as you're attentive to food. We have got a, we got a, we've got a uh, luncheon up here. Just as you can be focused when you're hungry, he sees his father's will, his father's work, and it grabs his attention just as much, and it nourishes him and gives him strength. My food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields. Are... So the analogy is Jesus is sitting in this well, exhausted, and he looks up and he sees someone ripe for harvest. And so he initiates the conversation, he goes after her. That's just, again, the amazing, you might think, dude, I'm tired. Let me get a bite to eat. Let me, let me get my, some rest, and then I'll go about evangelizing. Boom. Um, he's, th they say it, right? This is indeed the Savior of the world. We've seen that. John's put that on display. Verse 42, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Anyway, that's the long answer to Jake's question, but I, I think this is, anyway. Do you think that Jesus knew she was coming? And if the disciples had been there, they would have got in the way of that's, that's, So the question for those, the three people, J Jerry's one of them. So Jerry, the question um, was, did, do, you, do I think Jesus sent the disciples away because he knew she was coming? It's possible. It's challenging in the Gospels to know what Jesus does and doesn't know. So in this text, we've seen him learn the Pharisees. And he does really learn. In Luke's Gospel in particular, the humanity of Jesus is highlighted. He grows in wisdom. So we know Jesus is not all, at all times walking around functionally omniscient. The woman who touches him, who touched me, and he flatly says, I don't know the day or the hour that I'm coming. Only my father knows. And yet, in this very same passage, he evidences supernatural knowledge. So I don't know. It's possible that part of that supernatural knowledge extended to there's a woman coming and he did that. That's entirely possible. Or he's just as surprised. It's as much of a pleasant surprise for him to see her coming as it would be for anyone else. Um, and, and, and I'll say this. If, if you're attentive to God's will, he's going to work out the divine appointment. So whether or not Jesus knows someone's coming, entirely possible. Or whether he's just being faithful and in his faithfulness, the Father 
sends the disappointment. He realizes it and he sees it. Entirely could be, as you said, I don't know. Unless John tells me what Jesus does and doesn't know, I, I don't know when he's got special knowledge and when he doesn't. So good question. That, that could be entirely it. Don't know. Um, any other questions? Laura Kruger. Not really a question, more of like an example that goes along with what you're talking about. It reminds me of camp and being a counselor. You're hot, you're tired, you're sitting in a hot wagon. It's 11 o'clock at night, you're ready to go to bed and a child comes up to you and asks you a question or you know you need to reach this child and you're like, all I wanna go do is go to sleep. I'm hot, I've had a long day. And the way that you approach a child that maybe doesn't have a lot of background yeah. or maybe you approach a child that has a, ba a very solid Catholic background or Mormon background is vastly different yeah. of how you're going to talk about the gospel. Yeah. No, some, some of my best gospel conversations with my kids have come when good grief, just leave me alone and let me finish my work. You know, no, right? I mean, seriously. Um, and I, I bet if you look at where you've you've been able to be used of God to speak his word and his truth to other people, it's not always when you plan it. I wish I could plan powerful moments with people with God's word. That'd be great. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and I'm trying to work on a sermon or something, and a kid comes up, and I'm like, oh, you know. And then we end up someplace really, really amazing, you know. Um, praise God. So. That's right. That's exactly. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So, so yeah. Jesus is being faithful, and we we're getting ahead where he says, "Lift up your eyes and look. Just be looking." I mean, so it's really if we can just this is this is the challenge for me. I am so, I am so. My my world is so much involving Christians and people in the church. I have very little. Um, contact prolonged contact with with people who don't profess faith and so i can get into a habit of not lifting my eyes up and so if i'm not that every time i go to the store i got to witness to the cashier but at the very least i think jesus said my eyes need to be open and ready for that possibility you know what i mean I, I, it's not like some law but lord if there's harvest here i want to see it and jesus says lift your eyes up that's the part you just got to be open for it and i and i would think that the spirit of god will make it clear when and where you should, like, you'll know. But we aren't being faithful if we're not lifting our eyes up and being alert for those possibilities. And, and I, to my shame, think frequently I can just sort of, you know, I got th places to go, things to do. I got a car full of kids. I just need to get the milk and, you know, and I'm not, it's not on my radar. But if I'm not even open to that, then I'm not lifting, then I'm not being faithful. So I, I would say that if, if, you're, if your eyes are open, you're looking for the harvest, you're going to see it. You're going to know it, just as Jesus somehow did. Um, and the disciples weren't. They're just looking for, I mean, and they're doing valid things. They need to get food. They're, their rabbi's hungry. They're concerned about getting the, They got the food. They came back. He still doesn't seem to eat, eat something, and they miss it. They miss it. Any other, other thoughts? Oop. Allison. So if the Samaritans only had the first five books of Moses, what other prophecies were they like missing out on of who the Messiah would be? Like, oh. does this make it harder for them? Sh should it have made it harder for them to recognize, yeah. you know, he was who he was, but. Yeah. So they, they missed out on all the Psalms and there's a ton of, of, of Christology in the Psalms. Psalm 2, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord. Psalm 22, Eli, Eli, Lamach, Sabach, Thani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They've pierced me. They, all of Isaiah's suffering servant. I mean, all they've really got, actually, let, let, flip it around the other way. What do they have? They have the proto-gospel in Genesis 3. Your seed will crush the serpent seed and he will wound his heel. They got that. They've got God narrowing this promise down, the promise to Abraham, I will give you a seed and I'll make you a blessing and I'll give you a land. They get that. They get Deuteronomy 18, where God's going to raise up a prophet from among you like Moses and it's to him you shall listen. Um, what else is, are in, are in the, the books of Moses? Not a ton. You get, actually, I was talking about this the other day. You get the introduction of the curse motif of the cross in Numbers. 
Let me work, let me work backwards, right? So Galatians, Jake and I were talking about this this week. In, in Galatians, he quotes Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree, right? So what passage in Deuteronomy is that? Let me turn to Galatians and we can find out. Um, in Galatians, he's quoting, I'll read it. You don't need to turn to Galatians. I'll, I'll read it. Um, and then we'll go back to Deuteronomy. Um, it's, where is it? Curses everyone hung on a tree. Where is it? Galatians. Somebody with a phone. I'm not finding it. Please help. Lifeline. I am the weakest link. Hold on. I'll look it up on my phone. Cursed. It should be fast enough. Um, cursed. So Galatians 3.13. Oh, there it is. Um, yeah, there it is. Okay. Um, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's quoting Deuteronomy 21. So let's go to 21, Deuteronomy. And what's interesting is this reference to Deuteronomy doesn't tell you who to hang on a tree. Deuteronomy 21 just tells you when you do hang them on a tree, take them down before sunset. So Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. If a man has committed the crime punishable by death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, by the way, you could also translate that pierce him with a tree, um, you shall, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So notice, Deuteronomy doesn't tell you when this is the appropriate punishment. We were talking about this because I was talking with Jake and some other friends, because is, remarkably, Israel has no jail. Everything in Israel, every crime is punishable either by a fine, by lex talionis, or by the death penalty. That's it. Um, there's no jail. <laughs> so here we learn, and, the, and the, the death penalty is stoning. Um, but here's a death penalty. It's not stoning. So my, my question to ask you, if this is what sets up the curse motif of the cross, what's the antecedent of this? Is there an antecedent of this? What on earth? How, I mean, just think about it. You're just going along through Deuteronomy. By the way, if you impale someone on a tree, make sure you take them down. Is that just occurring out of nowhere? Is there anything prior that this might be referencing? Bingo! Korah's Rebellion and Numbers 25. So let's go there. This is why I want, I have a son named Phineas. We might be probably done. I don't know. But, but Phineas is a boss. Numbers... 25. Phineas is such a boss. Um, so this is, this is uh, right after Balak hires Balaam to curse Israel. And of course, Balaam can't do it. But he does give Balak some advice. If the people sin, their own God will judge them. And so Balak sends in his young ladies and they engage in, in immorality and pagan worship. It's this mass pagan orgy at Peor. And pick it up in 25. Chapter 25. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal at Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord. Now my ESV has a little footnote next to the word hang, and it says or impale. I think that's the right reading because of what follows. Okay? So the Lord comes up with the idea, this is such gross, evil, wicked, pagan sin, impale the heads of the people, right? Um, Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who are yoked themselves to Baal Fair. This again is why I think Joshua's closing speech is a little weak sauce. Moses is like, okay, we got to kill some people. Get some spears. We're going to go kill some people. Um, and Joshua's like, you do what's good for you. As for me and my house, 
Moses would be sharpening the pikes, I think. Could be wrong. Okay. Uh, Moses said, okay. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people. This is so brazen. He's just walking right by Moses and the leaders with this Midianite woman. He's a leader of the house of Judah. When Phineas and they're just weeping, they're just like, this is so brazen. And he goes into his tent to do his thing. And Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it. He rose, left the congregation, took a spear in his hand, went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them. Which suggests to you what they might have been up to. That he's able to pierce them through in one thrust. Which also is why I think hang is impaled, because that's what he does. And the Lord's going to bless him for it. So Phineas heard what God said. He didn't just get so mad he's going to stab somebody. He heard the Lord say, pierce them, impale them. And that's exactly what he does. Um, pierce the man of Israel and the woman together through the belly. Thus the plague of the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. Then the Lord said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people. Now look at this. This is atonement language. What I'm saying, this is, I think, the event Deuteronomy is referencing. So I think Deuteronomy is saying it may happen that something as awful as this happens, and you might decide we need to run some people through. But when you do that, no, because Deuteronomy doesn't tell you when to do that. It just says, if, if you, so here's an, if it gets this bad, you can, you can run some people through. If, if you're part of the theocratic people of Israel, I'm not, you can't, I can't, we're not Israel. Um, but, uh, but if something like that happens again, make sure you take them down. This is the only antecedent event that this can be referencing. And now notice with that in mind, with that, that this is setting up the curse motif of the cross that Paul's going to quote. Look at the atonement language when it, you see what God has done, what Phineas has done. Phineas, the son, verse 11, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I will give to him my covenant of peace. It shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. So here's the first time we see someone being impaled and pierced by a tree, atones for sin and removes God's wrath. So they had that much. You wanted to know what they had. I don't know how well they could have put all that together. But honestly, there's not a whole lot more Christology directly in the text that I'm aware of. Most of it comes in the Psalms, in Isaiah, in, in the latter prophets, in Micah. They don't have a ton. I mean, she sort of evidences, I know Messiah's coming. Did you have more of their question? Sorry, that was a long, big aside, sorry. Well, I, I think frequently um, when you're dealing with the people, th this is similar to Luke 15, um, where all the sinners and tax collectors are coming to Jesus. The sinners and tax collectors generally have a lot less self-righteousness to deal with, which I think is frequently why the willingness to recognize their guilt. And their, that's why prison ministries do so well, I think. You're far, it's far easier to find people willing to admit their guilt when they're in prison than religious people who think they're good. So yeah, I think that, but this, even this whole event in John 4 is a judgment on Israel. In John's gospel, there's one town and one town only that unanimously received Jesus. And it's not in Israel. <laughs> I mean, it's in Israel, sorry, it's in the geographic Israel, but it's those half-breed, pagan, awful Samaritans. They did. Um, but, oh, by the way, sorry. Do you remember when the people enter the land, after they enter the land, they erect an, al an alternate worship site, the altar on the other side of the river? Do you remember this? No? Okay. So the, the two tribes on the other side of the Jordan say, we're going to set up, and the rest of the tribes hear about it. Who's at the head of the army? Phineas. 
And you better believe they're like, whoa, 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 hold on. No, Physius is a boss, dude. Dude's a boss. By the way, this is the covenant that covenant theology never touches. I want to know how Melchizedekian priest fulfills a promise to a son of Aaron. That's what I want to know. I would suggest to you that in Ezekiel, we can talk, but I'd suggest to you in Ezekiel, the uh, foretold reference to the priesthood of Zadok. Zadok's a direct descendant of Phineas. Is that fulfillment? What? I want the entire impaler set. I got two of them. I want, I want to connect. I want to correct them all. I got Yael. She impales the head of Sisera, right? And I've got, I've got Abner who impales Azahel, right? Azahel's chasing him and he's fleet of foot and he says, what have I to do with you, you son of Zeruiah? Why must you turn aside? And he plants a spear and Azahel runs into the butt of the spear and he's impaled. So I got two out of three. I just want to complete the set. Anyway, okay. Um, that's right. That's right. I'm, okay, okay. Anyway, anyway, back. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay, but... Um, okay, sorry. What, where were we going with this? I don't know. Perhaps we're done. Okay, Deb. Wait, no, microphone, microphone. Hold on. I, I, I periodically do get encouraged by the five people listening to ABF. They really do. They, they really are blessed that we put the questions on as well. Okay. Sort of a, sort of a tongue-in-cheek thing. We were talking about um, Moses, what did they have about the Messiah? What about is, uh, Isaac and that sacrifice? Would they have understood that? Um, I don't know if they saw any significance in it. I mean, it's it's John makes the point with John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God. Oh, I think there are hints and inklings, but without any further development, how do you know which themes in in the Old Testament are the big threads? As you keep reading and you see which themes get developed, you can start to pick up and say, oh, okay, I guess rest is a big theme because rest keeps getting, I'm going to give you rest, I'm going to give you rest, you'll enter a land, you'll have rest. But with only the first five books, it's less clear which of the themes are getting built up and which ones aren't. They don't have the Davidic covenant. That's huge. They don't, I mean, seriously, they don't have the Davidic covenant. That's, that's second Samuel. Um, so they don't have any of that. They, there's plenty of revelation in the books of Moses, but also remember they're mixing with pagan worship. It's not like they have the books of Moses and only the books of Moses. They have the books of Moses and the Pearl of Great Price and second Esdras and Ecclesiasticus and for our modern purposes. They've got, it's not like, it, it would be one thing if they only had the books of Moses and nothing else. They got the books of Moses and a whole bunch of other stuff. It's just not scripture. Um, so, no. It might be worth uh, pointing out that while as a Samaritan, she may have had some idea, Jesus as the Messiah is very convincing that he is the Messiah. Whenever he's examined, whenever yeah. his works are examined, whether he's examined by religious leaders or by common people, he is what he says he is, and he is thoroughly convincing in all cases. So some of it might have been what little she knew, and part of it might just have been when you find the real thing and you're you know, instantly completely convinced by that real thing. Yeah. Well, no, let, let me go back to John 4. If you harmonize the Gospels... Um, you put them side by side. This is, I believe, the earliest clear statement of Jesus of his messiahship. So in John's gospel, other people have come to that conclusion. But you'll remember, even up till the night of the crucifixion, the Pharisees are crying, tell us plainly, who are you? And he uses covert titles like son of man, which is a really good covert title because Ezekiel is the son of man. And then in the trial, when he says, you'll see the Son of Man coming with power and glory, they realize, y you mean Daniel 7, the Son of Man? You mean the one who comes and a kingdom is given to him, to the Most High, to the Ancient of Days? You mean that? And that's when they're like, okay, that's blasphemy, kill him. So Son of Man is a really good title if you don't want to get crucified early. The people who have eyes to see and ears to hear get the connection with Daniel. And everyone else just thinks, well, that's about a hundred something times Ezekiel is called son of man. It's just a title for a prophet or a teacher. It's nothing, it's nothing covert. So Jesus is not overt with his claims to Messiah publicly because precisely those types of claims is what they'll crucify him for. So the fact that he says it this plainly and this simply here, in, in Luke, it's not to like the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember he calls Peter, who, who do men say that I am, Peter? 
And they say, some say you're John the Baptist, and some say you're Elijah. Well, who, who do you say I am? You're, we've come to believe you're the Messiah. Yeah, you're right. That's the confirmation there. This is way earlier. And she says to him, um, verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things, which probably is linking with Deuteronomy 18. I'll raise up for you a prophet like you, like Moses. It's to him you shall listen. There's, there's coming another spokesman who's going to speak for God. And Jesus, with zero ambiguity, this is I mean, just amazing grace to this, this outcast of outcasts. I speak to him, he. And it just gives me goosebumps to think of just how plain, how direct, how simple, how unmistakable this is. I want to show you one other thing. We'll get here in a couple of weeks, but go to, um, go to 43. And by the way, this is why you want a, a translation that's a formal equivalence, because if anyone's got the NIV here, I got a, I got a beef, I got a bone to pick with the NIV here on, on verse, um, 44. Um, so they want him to stay, right? Um, so let, let me go up to here. Um, okay, verse 43. After two days, he departed for Galilee. ESV, four, which is exactly what the Greek text says. We're looking at cause. In other words, we're going to find out why he went away. Why did he depart this unqualified success? The whole town comes to faith. They want Jesus to stay. I mean, think about that, right? Verse 29, many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. So when the Samaritans came to him, verse 40, they asked him to stay with them. You got an entire town of people come to faith. Will you stay with us, Jesus? Stay with us. And he stays two days. And he leaves. Why does he leave? For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he'd come to Galilee, you get that? He left because he needed to be rejected and he was only being accepted here. What a judgment on Israel for any Jew to read this. I, you guys are receiving me and that's not why I came. I've testified that a prophet's not without honor except in his hometown. So I, I need to go about getting rejected. So I got to get out of here. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? So I, I, it's absolutely the Greek. For Jesus had said, had testified himself that a prophet has no honor except in his hometown, um, has no honor in his hometown. So when he had come again to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. And we're about to see that welcome is shallow and disingenuous. So the, the high watermark, as good as it gets in John's gospel, is here. And Jesus can't stay with the Samaritans because he needs to go get rejected. And they're not rejecting him. You want to talk what Nicodemus says is bad or worse than the, that? That's got a sting if you're a Jew reading John's gospel later. Absolutely amazing. What? Who's got, anyone got the NIV? It says now. 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 They, don't, they eliminate the causality. Right. They, yeah. Well, they, smooth out complicate, they smooth out things that seem awkward. And let's admit, that's awkward. But I, John's writings were to get the awkward. And so if you can handle a formal equivalence, I commend it to you because I think that's a huge point. He, he leaves because he's already testified, prophets not without honor except his hometown, so when he came to Galilee. And, and I can, you know, if you want, I can bust out the Greek, show you that's exactly what the text is saying. The NIV likes to smooth it out. It's, it's, the NIV is a decent translation. I'm not saying the NIV is a bad translation. If you can handle it, there are better translations and you're going to get some more um, clarity. That's one of them. Um, anyway, we are at, no, we're not quite at time. We've got five minutes. Elsa! Oh. Okay. So in five minutes, you'll get two strong guys. Eric. Um, short, short of, um, short of the Samaritans having biblical text to rely on for the Messiah language. Hold on, hold on. we got a question here. Sorry. Don't make me go lampel on you. Short of the, the, the Samaritans having biblical text for the Messiah language, the whole Judean province at the time was awash with messianic news. And she lives in a city that's, that's on the highway of trade. So whether yeah. or not she knew biblically, which right. she clearly wasn't super familiar with 
you know, biblical knowledge, the whole area was was kind of in the Messiah times looking for the Messiah, weren't they? Yeah, messianic expectation was high. We, we know from the other gospels that they've already had one or two people claiming to be someone, these things coming up, and I'm the Messiah, and I'm the Messiah. We, we know that. We know that being under the, what's also got galling to the Israelites is that Samaria and Israel are both considered one province and ruled by one tetrarch by the Romans. The Romans, see, Rome sees no distinction. And so if you're a Jew, you're like, no, we're not part of them. Well, no, yeah, you are. On the Roman map, you are. And you're under one Roman person. And so they, they are, for 400 years, prophetic silence, for 400 years, waiting. And so the expectations are high, which we even see from her. She, she leaves her jar at the well. She goes back to the town. Could this be the Christ? And because of the expectation, everyone gets up and they go and see Jesus. That's, that's something they're very interested to see if that could be the case or not. Um, so no, you're, you're right, Eric. The, the messianic expectations at the time are very high, are very, very high. Um, okay. Last question. We got, oh, oh no, mic- microphone, 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 microphone. How did she know that he was a Jew? When he first started talking to her, presumably by his dress, um, and by remember the the Jews. No, no, it's a great question. How does he know she's a Jew? Um, it could be by his potentially his accent. We know the Galileans' accents. That's how they get Peter gets outed, right? It could be his outfit. His, I mean, his accent could be his dress. Um, it could be the uh, the carrying to. I mean, he he's got the seamless garment that says he's from Galilee, and any number of things. This, I mean, you and I can tell even when you go to, to Walmart or the gas station when someone's from out of town, when someone's from in town. Um, but also likely because she knows everyone in her hometown, and so Samaria is basically located where the uh, where the tribes the land of Ephraim. If you look on a map of Israel, where the tribal allotment for Ephraim is, that's Samaria. It's right in the middle towards the north. Um, so you, you could have gone along the coastline far out of your way to get there, which is why I said Jesus had to. There was necessary for him to go, well, there are alternate routes. This is the most direct route. Um, but no, I, th- I think probably his dress, his speech, those would be the two main things that would give him away as being a Jew. I mean, because the Jews are a distinct and peculiar people. God gave them, here's how you cut your sideburns. Here's how you, I mean, every, at every point, there was God's way and not God's way. And the Samaritans have mixed all sort of pagan religion in. So. It's a lot like, I mean, we can tell usually if you're from a certain region. Too. I mean, yeah. And I would say over in the Middle East, as an American, when you go in there, you, look, you would have no idea. But if you talk to, like, get your translator, they can come out. He said pop instead of soda. <laughs> right? Okay. We are at time. We got our fifth Sunday fellowship. Uh, I hope you guys come. Even if you haven't brought food, please come. It's a good time. And uh, God bless. Godspeed. Good day.